You are listening to In Pursuit of Development with Professor Dan Bannock. Welcome to In Pursuit of Development. The political landscape of Latin America has undergone major transformation since the democratization wave of the 1980s and 1990s. During this time, most democracies in the region have managed to persist, albeit with a few notable exceptions. However, the quality of these democracies has often been questioned. Guillermo O'Donnell's characterization of Latin American democracies as strange and flawed yet surviving aptly captures this scenario. To discuss the varying degrees of democracy, the nuances of political inclusion, the role of political parties, state capacity, and the interplay between democracy and development, I'm joined by Gerardo Munk, who's a professor of political science and international relations at the University of Southern California. In a recent book, Latin American Politics and Society, a Comparative and Historical Analysis, Jerry and Juan Pablo Luna argue that while Latin American countries have stabilized democratic systems, the journey towards a fully democratized society remains incomplete, as evidenced by the breakdown of democracy in some parts of the region. Various factors have contributed to the state of democracy in contemporary Latin America, The challenges facing democracy in the region range from the impact of neoliberal economic policies to the influence of external powers like the United States, the role of dominant elites, political culture, state weakness and corruption. The growing phenomena of populist leaders such as Nayib Bukele in El Salvador and Javier Millet in Argentina forms a crucial part of our discussion. While scrutinizing the policies of these leaders and their implications for democracy, we also examine the complexities of political inclusion in Latin American societies, including the role of women, indigenous groups, Afro-descendants, and ordinary citizens in Latin American democracies. As scholars often point to the persistent crisis of representation in Latin American politics, it is important to explore the relationship between citizens and politicians and the role of the judiciary in this dynamic. And although there are major shortcomings in providing equal access to political office for all societal groups, there's also been progress in some areas, such as the introduction of gender quotas. A particularly important ongoing debate relates to what is considered the most effective development model for the region. I hope you're enjoying Season 5 of the show. Don't forget to subscribe for more insightful discussions and please share our podcast links within your networks. Jerry, I'm so happy to see you today and to have you on the show. Welcome. It's a pleasure to be on your program, Dan. I want to get us started by talking about a relatively recent book from 2022 that you wrote with Juan Pablo Luna. It's called Latin American Politics and Society, a Comparative and Historical Analysis. In the very first chapter, you actually argue that Latin America has made progress on the so-called easy problems but fail to resolve the so-called hard problems. And these hard problems are those regarding democracy and citizenship. Help us understand what you mean by these hard problems that have not been resolved 
And if so, why have these problems not been resolved to your satisfaction? So the distinction between harder and easier problems is something that uh, some other academics came up with that distinction, Ben Schneider and Alicia Holland. And I think it's a nice way of thinking about the region. We can think more broadly about um, Latin America, other regions, that I think sometimes people tend to get overly pessimistic. Uh, we have problems, it can't be done, we're stuck in a rut. And to see, I mean, this has to be the case, if countries within the region, Latin America, have had success with some problems, I mean, it shows that some issues can be tackled with, and then maybe we can draw some lessons from that. And then we can distinguish those that are those that are harder. In, in terms of just going through the list of broad issues in which Latin America has had some success and, and maybe not others, one that I'd say has successes in terms of uh, attaining a minimal level of democracy. One of the chapters provides a broad overview, late 19th century, throughout the 20th century in terms of democracy. Democracy was scarce in Latin America. Usually it was limited, uh, suffrage restrictions, and unstable. So Latin America was a region with military coups. With the wave of democratization in the 80s and 1990s, Latin America attained democracy sort of by the, the year 2000. The summary statement is that all of the countries but Cuba were democratic. So outside of Europe, there was no region that was so homogeneously democratic. I think some people in the West think, well, Latin America is a term, backward region and sort of, look, this is a, a great success. And if we look at what's happened then the 21st century, problems have emerged. There's a lot of discussion about them these days. But Latin America has broken the cycle of coups and has remained democratic for the most part. So I think that's a very important achievement. Just to mention a few other things where a lot of progress has been done. Um, if we talk about political inclusion, Latin America led the way with gender quotas. It starts in Argentina, 91 spreads. So many countries have sort of higher representation of women uh, in Congress than the United States. So it's a par with, you know, Europe or even above sort of only the Scandinavian region um, sort of has a higher representation of women. So that, that's something that changed from the 1990s uh, on. Okay, so there was an issue that was perceived, legislation was introduced, other kind of um, initiatives, and sort of a situation was changed. With regards to transitional justice, sort of, so Latin America really led the way. And again, they started Argentina with the trial of the military juntas, 1985. And there's a movie on that. There's an uneven track record in different countries, but people that have studied transitional justice globally say that Latin America has done more than uh, any other regions. So Latin America has addressed really important political issues and dealt with them successfully. In terms of enduring problems, and, and I think these eventually then link into the discussion about the quality of democracy, I'd highlight two. Um, one is a traditional one that's discussed when people discuss Latin America, which is uh, inequality. I was going to come to that. Every time one thinks about Latin America, particularly in relation to development, inequality comes up. And then the yes. question is whether it is possible to sustain high quality democracy with high yes. levels of income inequality. Yes. Well, I think thinking Latin America sort of gives you a sense of problems, political problems that are associated with high levels of income inequality, things that 
people in the United States are catching up to, sort of maybe some European countries, but sort of the process of inequalization has gone further in the United States. Essentially, you get extreme concentration of economic power. You have very powerful business groups, and they're obviously going to exercise political influence. So if we take one core principle of democracy, rough equality among citizens, expressed most clearly in the right to vote, it's obvious that that principle is going to be restricted when you have such a high concentration of power. It's basically the problem of the role of money. In politics, many people have discussed this issue. So you have the legal equality, but then in the actual politics, money speaks and money speaks loudly. And, but then that leads to sort of a disaffection with democracy. But, you know, I vote, some people come to power, but it seems like decisions get made in the interests of others. Pressing concerns of the citizens may not be addressed or sort of uh, aren't given their priority that they may, uh, may deserve. So, so I think this is a circle. We can think sort of democracy does not address problems of inequality. Problems of inequality affect the political system. So, I mean, one way of thinking of this is sort of, this is not sustainable. Eventually, something's going to crack. But I think sort of this, the last 30 years of, of Latin American political history said, well, you can actually have an equilibrium between high levels of uh, income inequality and democracies that endure. So you have elections, you have alternation in power, but they're what we call low-quality democracies. So I think... Many of us were using sort of the European model, social democratic model. Democracy thrives, yeah, sort of the post-war period when you have a, a welfare state, reducing inequality, people are included. If you don't have that, democracies can't endure. Well, the track record now, sort of in some cases, 40 years, it's also democracy can endure, but it's not the kind of democracy that we may have envisioned when the transitions ha started to happen in the 80s and 90s. I found this particularly interesting. You guys write that the problems of democracy have prevented the elimination of problems for democracy and problems for democracy block the possibility of reducing problems of democracy. So I think that in a way actually neatly sums up what you were just saying. But just returning to the success stories, Jerry, I think we have to appreciate that on the one hand, you know, Latin America, the region has achieved, has stable democracy. That has to be recognized. The, the turbulent times are perhaps over, hopefully, but the region hasn't fully democratized. And yes. there are some countries where there's a lot of violence and democracy has broken down thinking about Honduras, El Salvador, I mean, you can say Venezuela. So just to pursue that earlier point, what do you think accounts for the state of democracy today in the region? And what are the problems? What explains the problems? Is it the dissatisfaction over certain types of economic policies? Is it the support for China against the Americans? Is it the role of dominant elites that we were just talking about? Is it a particular type of political culture? Is it weakness of the state, high levels of political corruption? 
all of the above or maybe some more than others. <laughs> I mean, so so give us a little sort of taste of what you think explains some of the problems of democracy. So I'd say quickly, all of the above, but maybe one exception of the things that you you mentioned, the role of China. I, the, the role of China is largely economic. It's growing. One can talk about it having certain political consequences, but I don't see that as a main sort of part of China's influence. So I'd, I'd restrict it to the economic. There can be some pressure. There can be some some issues sort of that aren't as transparent as one would hope in a democracy. But I wouldn't see that as a major role. Sort of as a, in Africa, maybe it's more central uh, than in Latin America. In, in Latin America, the U.S. still has a really important role, particularly if we're talking about countries closer to the United States, Central American countries. We've just seen the events in, in Guatemala that led, thankfully, to um, Arevalo taking over power. The United States played uh, an important and positive role directly and also working through the Organization of American States. I'd say sort of politically, the United States has a more important role. There's a growing role uh, of China on the on the on the economic. But so going to what are the factors? One is ideological issues that relate to neoliberalism. Okay, the economic reforms that were put in place, particularly in the 1990s, and I take neoliberalism to be sort of extreme free market deregulation. What we're talking about in the case of Argentina currently with Javier Millet, uh, sort of uh, the state is the problem, the market is perfect, and sort of we should rely on every decision for allocation of resources or the market, yes, yeah, sort of. So that led to important ideological conflicts, groups aligning on the left and the right, sort of, so Chavez comes in here as somebody opposed to neoliberalism, opposed to the role of the United States with free trade agreements and sort of. What we see in many countries, and both on the left and the right, yes, yeah, sort of, is that political groups, their supporters, put more value on that ideological agenda than on democracy. So they'll look aside when, if I'm on the right, you know, if some other sort of government on the right does some things that are bridge democracy, I don't speak up. I criticize the ones on the left. But not because it may be undemocratic, because I don't like their policies. So, and the same you can say on the left. So, I think ideological disputes, and I, so this has to do then with economic reforms of the 90s. Really, I mean, that's sort of the day to day things. And when we're talking about Venezuela, people clearly align sort of what they say about the current situation. Okay, the, the electoral prescription of uh, Maria Corina Machado. The government of Maduro, it's like um, it's it's aligned too much of, along ideological lines, and people sort of don't say we have a problem of democracy, and this is why I understand by democracy, and this is what's happening. So I think ideological disputes have been very central, and sometimes people look aside at issues of democracy, problems of democracy, and not willing to speak out because of uh, those issues. Aren't there some very powerful political personalities, Jerry? We're talking about Venezuela, Chavez, Hugo Chavez, and now you have the charismatic, social media savvy, so-called populist Javier Miller. These are people who seem to drum up considerable amount of support, right? I mean, it's their personal charisma 
And so I'm just trying to think about, I mean, this dissatisfaction with the neoliberal economic reforms together with political parties where certain party leaders are very charismatic together with perhaps weak state capacity in some parts of the region yes. is a rather interesting mix, right? So so the thing with, I mean, to see the origins of people like Chavez, Millet, so you'd have to go to the party system. Um, is it institutionalized? Is it more or less stable? And sort of, so another, whatever factor, maybe sort of a symptom of these problems is that there's been what people in Latin America talk about as a crisis of representation. Parties don't seem to represent people. And so that leaves the political arena open for outsiders. Uh, people like Chavez, people like Millet came in as outsiders. Bukele in El Salvador, we can talk about the same in the same way. Yeah, even though Bukele was part of the leftist party to 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 begin with, so the party system is not structured, institutionalized. So you make your way up through the party, and so it it's an opening for these people. Sort of, they are very good in terms of interacting with citizens through the media. So they get their platform through the media. Bukele through the social media as well, sort of very adept uh, at that. And and basically say the solution is to set aside the old party, just trust me. To bypass the state in many ways, right? Well, let's say bypass first the, the democratic institutions, the political parties, Congress. So this is an issue that's sort of at the center of disputes right now in, in Argentina. Yeah, but so so we can talk about Parties not working and allowing these leaders, populist, charismatic, that bypass institutions, that seek emergency powers. Uh, this is something we see in El Salvador. This is an issue uh, in Argentina. Millet's requesting <laughs> tremendous powers. He requested from Congress two years of emergency powers with the, the possibility of the president extending it for four years. So your your entire four years, I get to decide whatever without Congress. Congress has pushed back. So that's that's a good sign, sort of. They're certainly not going to give that. Maybe sort of some reduced emergency legislative powers. And then I bring in sort of the issue of the state. And, and, and this is where sort of, I'd say, the issues are not just economic, but it has to do with what the state is able to deliver. So sometimes you have politicians that, let's say, honest, have a good program, they come to power. But with the states that Latin America has, and this is another inheritance, I put it along with economic inequality, a long-term inheritance with those states, it's very hard to, in some sense, implement programs, produce results that you promise in campaigns, and sort of you, you then you're trying to implement. One way, just a broad categorization, it's only useful as a starting point. Sort of, there's corruption, okay? Uh, so politicians can use the state to get money from companies in exchange for for public sector uh, deals. Uh, the state is used for the purpose of electoral clientelism, th th those kind of things. But then there's the issue, and, and this is sort of something that's on the center of attention, particularly South Central America, Mexico. The issue of security, okay? So the level of homicides in Latin America is the highest of the world, maybe sort of um, sub-Saharan Africa, some areas is more or less similar. So Bukele's success isn't in terms of economic results, it's in terms of providing a solution to what was seen as a key issue, the lack of security of people to go out sort of in their neighborhoods to feel safe. 
And so, so the issues that the states have not been able to do that broadly within Latin America. So people are desperate and will support, uh, everything says that Bukele is going to win the election this weekend, leaders that somehow figure out how to deliver on those needs outside of the rule of law, let's say, sort of cutting corners. This is having to do uh, with the state, uh, ignoring the rights of citizens. Um, so we have, I wouldn't say there's one factor that explains things. It's a syndrome of things. Some have to do with the political system, the parties, the state, the economy, and concentration of power. And so, so those things kind of work together. Sort of, They seem very stable, but then every now and then you have these breakthrough leaders Usually it's breakthrough in, in a way that solves one thing, but makes other problems larger, rather than breakthroughs towards a higher quality democracy. So that's been more frequent, these uh, breakthrough leaders that put democracy at risk. I was thinking, Jerry, about the fact that citizens want development, but they also want security. They want to ensure that their children and their grandchildren, you know, have a good world, that they would be able to inherit a sustainable world. Increasingly, there's so much talk about climate change and extractivism, natural resources, the Amazon, you know, is being depleted, deforestation. There's so many things happening, right? So what makes some of these countries you mentioned particularly interesting is that there appears to be, and correct me if I'm wrong, there's kind of a temporary focus on one issue. So El Salvador is now obsessed with security, and that explains Bukele's success, right? I read somewhere in his class book, his high school book or something, he's, he called himself the class terrorist. So, you know, he's got this kind of personality of being provocative, and he's hard on, on these gangs, and uh, he's uh, apparently been rather successful in cleaning up uh, some of these problems that El Salvador was experiencing, which explains why he's going to most likely win in a landslide uh, vote, right? So security, if you can guarantee that, it's almost like, and that's the paradox, that you're willing to, as a citizen, look away from human rights abuses. You can, you know, tolerate certain reductions in your political freedoms in the hope that security is what you will get in the process. It actually reminds me of the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte. You know, he would use these very tough language, you not know, kill these people and, you know, I'll sort them out. And it seems Bukele is that. But I wanted to get to, um, you know, Millet and Chavez. I mean, would you say that some of these so-called breakout leaders, as you just put it, some of them are interested in having the state as the solution to everything, nationalize, right? The, the government will provide you with housing and cheap petrol on cash transfers, which, by the way, is a fantastic invention in Latin America, conditional cash, cash transfers, and we can get back to that, versus these leaders like Javier Millet who are pushing for privatization. I remember vividly last year this viral video of him with this board with all the, the, the sort of the yellow sort of notes yeah, about each down all ministry. the ministries. And, yeah, he says, you know, yeah. out with everything. So he was actually, you know, performing the, the true libertarian sort of function, the minimalist state, right? It's only law and order, nothing else. Is he a threat to democracy, Millet, as some people are, are putting it? And how long do you think this honeymoon 
will last. Or it, it appears, at least if I'm not wrong, his popularity is already ebbing out. So people observing Argentina say that maybe the honeymoon is over because he came in with such a strong bet. So there was a strike by the Organized Labor Confederation, the CGT, just last weekend. So this was after like 45 days in government, his first facing a first strike, sort of that sort of hadn't happened since 83. This is a situation and, and sort of, I think it's important to not assume that somebody is a threat, call them a threat to democracy before you have a strong base. It would sort of, he introduced two pieces of legislation. One, a, a decree that radically changed things. And then what he called is sort of a, an umbrella law. The decree sort of changed about, like had 300 articles in it. The other one's 600. It's like changing everything from the economy, the state, sort of all, all the areas. And within this umbrella law, asking for this delegation of authority. So he could then basically make decisions on all areas for four years of government. That basically is a, say, a threat to democracy when you concentrate that much power. You're basically claiming then Congress can sort of push back that power should be delegated entirely to the executive. So that's certainly sort of going down the wrong path. We have other cases that we see when that happens, sort of, it's it's problematic. The problem that he faced politically, sort of, so so he's a very powerful leader, but he's actually politically weak in that he he basically came from a new party that was formed two years ago. He has roughly ten percent of his own people in Congress, two chambers, sort of. Um, he has an ally, sort of the old party of, of Macri, the pro, but they don't have a majority. So they have to build a coalition in Congress. And that's that's politics. You, that, you do that through politics, through compromise. And, and he basically spends a lot of time just criticizing them. You have to do this or else, yeah, sort of, you know, they're going to be huge problems. Uh, so he threatens uh, people in Congress rather than negotiate. Through back channels, they negotiate. But sort of what we see just this in the last week, he's realizing that people in Congress, even those that are willing to go along with some of the things, aren't willing to give him everything he wants. So Congress is starting to play an important role. Yeah, sort of. So, so okay, maybe an, the executive will plays their hand in our system of government. Okay, then Congress can basically say, no, I don't give you that. I'll give you this, but then something else and sort of. So, so we're starting to see the normal interplay of politics uh, happening. But what Argentina. about the libertarian ideas, Jerry? I mean, do you really think this will make a, a dent into Argentina's problems, getting rid of all these so-called unnecessary ministries? In some parts of the region, in Peru, you had Hernando de Soto some years ago, also promoting similar ideas, individual rights, privatization, you know, in terms of land rights, etc. But do you yes, think yes. that kind of ideas, are they catching on? I think, so. no, it's, it's in Argentina, it's reactive that you've had 20 years mostly of government by the Peronists and this group called the, the Kirchneristas. And people think sort of, we don't like the course that the country was taking back then. We want something different. This guy's different. I don't, I don't understand. Nobody knows what libertarianism is, but it's, it's different. So, so, so people want something different. And this guy was the most clear, different alternative to... To the government candidate massa they, they think it's different they think that the state is corrupt yeah it's not about the minimalist state so people don't want 
sort of people that are corrupt in the state. So so if you say there's a problem and I think it's corrupt, okay, go away with that. Yeah, sort of. So 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 it's just like I don't know, it's like ideological, not well thought through. Argentina hasn't been growing economically. They've been running a huge budget deficit. So so a key thing rather than state is sort of actually sort of balancing the books, cutting down on unnecessary expenses is part of it. Part of the rearrangement of the of the, the administration, the cabinet was a little bit for show because sort of what's was a ministry becomes a secretariat. So it doesn't mean that you're reducing something, you're just changing sort of the structure uh, of the state. Millet is looking for places in which to to cut expenditures. So so he's trying to balance the books because sort of that's seen as a key reason fueling uh, inflation, sort of a way to attack inflation. Is this going to work short term in terms of lowering inflation, longer term in terms of triggering economic growth? We still don't know. We still don't know. I think people are sort of giving him a chance. Okay, so we've tried other things. Let's see if this works. The polls start to suggest some of his support is declining. It's still it's still strong, but some polls just over the last week uh, sort of is the country on the right track start to indicate sort of that people are disagreeing within the specifics of his proposal. Given some of the problems Argentina was facing and inflation, I mean, it's just, you know, mind-boggling what people have had to bear, right? I mean, I, I, if I was living there, if you were there, I'm sure we'd be also looking for a savior, somebody who will just get rid of that problem, right? I mean, it's just unbearable. And, and, and this whole thing about, you know, pegging everything to the dollar, and it's, it's going to be pretty interesting. He's so unconventional. I want to go back to the successes and some of the challenges with democracy, Jerry. Now, even though you mentioned that in many instances, many Latin American countries, democracies have become more inclusive, there are some groups who who are better off than others. So you're right about the, the political representation of women. And in the book, the two of you also write about other types of institutional in inventions for political inclusion. But in terms of what hasn't worked is, you know, say Afro-Brazilians or people of Afro-descent, they have gained less in terms of access to political office than women. And certain innovations have worked, but others have not. So give us a little sense of who are the beneficiaries and who in many ways has been left behind in this more contemporary form of democracy in the region? The big success is inclusion of women, yeah. The issue of the, the right to vote was sort of an issue, an accomplishment of the 20th century. But this was sort of, if you have the right to vote, can you run for office and have a chance of winning? And sort of the basic indicator we use is sort of percentage of women in Congress, sort of that has improved a lot. And that was an explicit, so it wasn't so much a cultural change, but sort of some explicit legislation, the cultural changes that go along with that. The the successor you mentioned before, the CCTs, the conditional cash transfers, Yeah, uh, that is something that started, again, in Latin America. This is in the 1990s. They were started in, in Brazil and in Mexico. Then with Lula, sort of it changed. It became, in some sense, a more encompassing, more ambitious kind of program that spread to, again, most countries. That was successful in terms of poverty reduction. So particularly during Lula's initial two administrations at the beginning of the century, um, you'd always see data like you know, 30 million Brazilians have entered the middle class. Uh, those kind of, 
that was a time of political abundance, uh, economic abundance. That was part of the commodity boom. Brazil, other countries benefited from that. So, so states had a lot of money. So there was a general sort of economic good times back then. If we see what's happened since and sort of sort of with the pandemic, starting whatever the 18 crisis, the pandemic, some of those gains have been lost. So, so the one achievement was poverty reduction. In some cases, actually sort of in half the cases with some slight reductions of inequality. But those were done at a time when states sort of had a lot of resources. Um, so the question is sort of could could they maintain that uh, during the tougher times? And and sort of we haven't seen that as clearly. In cases like Argentina, it's because of I'd say economic mismanagement. It's it's gone in reverse. Yeah, sort of. Um, so you have more people that are poor. When we talk about race and ethnicity in Latin America, we talk about indigenous groups. The, the originary people in the region before the Europeans arrived and, and Afro-descendants. And we see in some cases, Bolivia being the, the key one, sort of a big transformation, a country governed by a white elite, now sort of being governed by indigenous leaders with strong representation of indigenous people uh, in Congress. We see it less so in other countries, yes, yeah, sort of that have large indigenous population, Though you can see the role of indigenous groups, they played an important role in Guatemala in pushing back against the attempt to, to not allow Arevalo to take over power. So they don't have a big party by themselves, but they're, they're central to, to the political system. So there have been some initiatives, even sort of reserved seats. You have it in Mexico, a few other countries, Panama, to institutionalize the power of, of these groups. Um, and then this goes associated with some changes of the constitution, recognizing different languages other than Spanish as the official one for the business of the government, allowing some sort of decentralization of, of power. So in the indigenous, main indigenous region, sort of um, certain political authority, legal authority uh, would be delegated to those groups. One thing that's debated and that they've been pushed back in the case of Chile uh, Chile is one of the countries that has done less with regards to this issue. Um, there was an initial constitutional proposal to declare the nation plurinational. This is what some countries like Ecuador and Bolivia have done, and they've been pushed back. Okay, sort of, no, we're one country. Sort of, um, so that's still a debated issue. Uh, what's the role of indigenous people, indigenous culture within the nation in terms of how it's constitutionally enshrined? The area where there's been less progress is uh, with Afro-descendants. We see movements of these groups in Brazil, obviously, sort of Colombia as well. Um, there have been some changes, if you look at Brazil, in terms of affirmative action. This is linked sort of then with uh, Afro-descendants in terms of helping access to the universities as well as the public sector jobs. But not, even though this was discussed, in terms of something like quotas, uh, for candidates uh, for public office. So if we look at the representation of Afro-descent, it has improved, yeah, sort of, so there's something that sort of improved uh, over time, but the issue of race, sort of Afro-descendants, dealing with the inheritance of the past, slavery, is something that I think Latin America is slow to deal with. Brazil is obviously a key case. I mean, sort of a landmark Speech by President Fernando Enrique Cardoso, this was uh, the summit um, in South Africa, sort of right at the beginning uh, of the century, was the first president to basically say, sort of, we apologize on the part of the state 
for what uh, what we did, yeah, sort of what the, the Brazilian state uh, did, recognizing discrimination in Brazil. So in some sense, sort of the country, the leadership had been in denial about that, this idea of racial democracy. We'd always been a racial democracy. There's no issue here. So this, I'd say, sort of belatedly and gradually, and still sort of a lot of work to do in that regard. You don't have a robust debate as people have in the United States. They, they understand it's an issue, that there's discrimination, structural racism, various terms. The Americans have a conflictual race relations. We 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 don't have a conflictual race relations. So it's like setting the issue aside. Sort of there's there's not much of a discussion uh, there. So so the the inclusion of women has been in some sense the easy. The women, from the perspective of the political elites, I have to make the reform. They're like us, yeah, sort of. With indigenous groups, they're not so much like us. With sort of the Andafra descendants, sort of, it's like, it's, it's a threat to how we've done things, the status quo. So I'd say that's a big issue, uh, lingering issue uh, to deal with. All the data that we have, a lot of the data that we have, also point sort of the political, whatever, exclusion, de facto exclusion, sort of not not having a seat at the table, are also linked with sort of uh, sort of poorer indicators on health, economic well-being. So this comes idea of intersectionality, you're excluded on political, cultural, economic grounds. So so that's certainly uh, an important an important issue. Let's talk a little bit about democracy and development. Much of what we've been talking about so far is about how some groups have perhaps benefited more than others. And there are many, many problems related to welfare provision, reducing income inequality. You were mentioning Lula. Apart from the conditional cash transfers, he was also in that first period, if I recall, promoting you know zero hunger. That was very important for him, particularly in areas Northeast, you know, not some of those states where Afro-Brazilians were often uh, vulnerable to malnutrition. So you had these very expensive, very well-designed in many cases, state programs aimed at providing cash or providing some sort of food, et cetera, to combat these problems. In Venezuela, I'd also like to hear your take that first period when Chavez came, you know, there was this euphoria that the state would provide housing. And there was this feeling, I think, in some sections that the state would take care of you and is interested in promoting development. Now you have leaders like Bukele talking about security, but also, you know, security will lead to peace, will lead to development. You have Mille saying, privatization will lead to development. So what characterizes the current political debates, you think, in the region on development? Is there a lot of talk about one or two or three different models of economic development? You mentioned this earlier when I mentioned China, you said that is mainly an economic one. Do you think there are some leaders and some groups who are now thinking more positively about the Chinese success story or even India? Asian success stories vis-a-vis American, you know, models, which may not be seen as positively perhaps now as many other, you know, competitors. So what is that discourse you think about development? Is democracy seen to be delivering development or 
is there this kind of frustration with what democracy has given? Yeah, so I'd say there's frustration with what democracy has been able to deliver. When the president, the first president sort of in this period of our, of our Argentina, Rodolfo Fonsin became president, he said, with democracy, we lead, we'll cure, we'll educate. It, it will deliver. Sort of people are looking back and saying, well, not quite. What is the root problem? I'd say sort of the two main models of development. But sort of what you have with democracy is candidates proposing different models of development. It's something different models of the country. And so you have going back and forth. So Argentina has had a very statist model with the state playing an important role. Now sort of going zero state, you know, 100% market. Yeah, sort of. And you've had in many countries then sort of oscillation. Yeah, Argentina is probably sort of uh, more extreme. Peru, whatever the problems are, sort of the kind of settle on some outlines of the model and, and, and continue with that. So, so part of the problem is you can't be shifting your model of development every, you know, 20 years. So Latin America hasn't arrived at the point that sort of, okay, we have, and we talk about politics of the state, not partisan, okay, that we basically agree. And even if there's alternation of power, sort of at the margin, you'll change things, but we agree on what the model is. The, the, the model should be some mixed model, okay? So I think sort of having that we've learned is sort of markets are good, efficient when they work as markets and sort of for them to work as markets, they need to be, regulated the state needs to 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 do that sort of set the rules of the game they have to be predictable so what you, you don't have capitalism you have capitalism of friends um sort of as as the label is, is said that's in some sense more political kind of capitalism so so there isn't a debate that says these are the broad outlines that we all political parties think we should we should have and so, so the changing back and forth sort of, I mean, that that the heavy economic costs uh, related with that. So you have the, the extreme sort of Venezuela, whatever, Nicaragua is just a totally uh, different case, sort of them more free market countries. Brazil is somewhere in the middle, sort of even with political changes, they, they have a bit more of a view of what country they want, even with the change. I mean, they're obviously important changes, Lula, Bolsonaro, and particularly in terms of the international projection of the country. But I think the first solution for development is like, what do we know from the track record of history about what are the broad outlines of a model? Can we settle those things, not debate them every uh, economic cycle? I think sort of, so So the discussion is too ideological and you need to get down to the business of development. It's just like, um, okay, sort of how to grow an economy and what the uh, what the state should do in terms of regulation, uh, providing the framework, incentives to export, uh, these kinds of things. So so you have the excesses, I think, sort of on both sides, when it's too status, too free market. And so you bounce around and sort of, you're not building stuff. Sort of the, the development's a long term, it's like several decades, okay? But you need to get on the right track. And I, I'd say that's the big thing. Latin America's more or less learned from the 20th century. We don't want dictatorships. There's some sort of questioning about that, sort of whether dictatorships could be better, but sort of let's deal with the messy democracy. But they still continue to debate what model of development we want, but in really fundamental terms. And instead of this is the model of development we want, and, and how can then we gradually improve it? Okay, that, that would be great. Yeah, sort of. So much more mature thinking about development. I think that's missing in many countries. Sort of some countries are closer to that. So I think that's a big, the big issue of development. 
And the better Latin America does in terms of that, then the better the feedback loop in terms of if democracy is aiding development, that's going to strengthen democracy, sort of so. So those are the things it seems like the debates are always the same one, sort of, you know, it's like, you know, <laughs> yeah. every few decades, it's like, it's like, no, folks, it's like, let's get on the path and and see how we can gradually grow inclusive uh, with inclusive uh, measures. Um, so I think that's a big challenge in terms of the link between democracy uh, and development. It was wonderful to chat with you. Thank you very much for coming on my show today. A pleasure to be here. If you enjoyed this conversation, please spread the news among friends and colleagues and share the link to the podcast on social media. You can tag us on Twitter at Global Dev Pod and Dan Bannock. Thank you for listening to In Pursuit of Development with Professor Dan Bannock from the University of Oslo. Please email your questions, comments and suggestions to inpursuitofdevelopment at gmail.com.